O God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed, and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries? Yea, O Lord, how long shall they suffer these wrongs and unlawful oppressions before thine heart shall be softened toward them, and thy bowels be moved with compassion toward them? Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. What you just heard was Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, torn over all the personal anguish of things that have happened to him of recent, especially finding himself a prisoner inside the Liberty Jail. This was Joseph's plea for himself and for his people, for God to show himself, to reach out of the heavens, and to make himself known unto Joseph and to the saints. Each of us have been in places where we have needed nothing more than God to show up. And often in our earlier stages of development, often when things worked out so beautiful, God is all around us, answering us all the time, giving us communication in various ways, but always making himself known. And then there comes a point where something happens. There's an article I've used before from John Pauline regarding stages of faith. I want to read that section here. I think it's crucial to setting up how many of us feel in this moment. He says, at the very height of spiritual success, something tends to happen that we least expect usually between the ages of 30 and 50. When our our church is growing, people are feeling blessed, each of us reaching various milestones within our faith, there comes an unwelcome guest. It is a personal crisis many have called the dark night of the soul. Past certainties suddenly become inadequate. We call into question everything we have ever believed and everything we have ever done. We feel like failures, like we can't do anything right. We are humbled. Our world caves in. Our faith, which sustained us powerfully up until this point, doesn't seem to work anymore. All of our answers are replaced with questions. God either vanishes from view or breaks out of the comfortable box we held him in. We hit bottom. We reach the end of our rope. We hit the wall and can seem to go no further on this spiritual journey. We have saved others, but ourselves we cannot save. We feel completely alone and abandoned by God. As one person puts it, just when I got it all together, I forgot where I put it. That's John Pauline's description of the dark night of the soul. The question becomes with people who are right now in the midst of having a crisis of faith, in the midst of second guessing their past certainties, in the midst of realizing that things they believe so deeply no longer fit together. Like how do we help them? How do we reach out to people 
in, in these anguishing moments of their faith journey and help them. And I know each of us have answers in our head. Like, how do we handle it? And I don't mean like on a surface level. I mean like when you realize that somebody in your ward is hurting and is having a faith transition, like how do you go and help them? When somebody has a loved one who dies, how do we go to that person and assist them and love them through this? And I want to stop short of giving answers at this point. I simply want you in your own mind to say, this is what I would do. And with that, I want to, sh- I want to play a short video. You'll just obviously see the audio of it, but it's a video on YouTube. It's by one of my f- most favorite people in the world, Brene Brown. She's not a Latter-day Saint, but her expertise is in vulnerability, empathy, shaming. And, and this particular video is on the difference between empathy and sympathy. So with that, here's Brene Brown. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, (laughs) it's bad, uh uh-huh. No, you want a sandwich? Um, Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. And I, I want us to think for a moment, like I'm, I'm talking a little slower this episode because I want us to think about what this means. So Brene Brown, and, and I think every one of you as you're listening to her, 
you can see like, yes, empathy is way better than sympathy. Empathy is the Christ-like reaction, and we'll get into that later, but empathy is Jesus. Sympathy is still keeping this distance from somebody. So I had a friend recently, he gave a lesson in Sunday school, and he brought with him uh, a member of the church who had been through a very difficult faith crisis and no longer held the same testimony that they used to. In fact, to the Orthodox member, this person would look like they had no testimony at all. And my friend, in his lesson, wanting to help this class begin to break down some of these barriers, asked his guests to stand up and to tell his story. And I just think that's beautiful first. Like, like just let's stop there for a moment. How beautiful it is to give the floor to someone who is different than you, who is who has a different perspective than the rest of the class, to point to them and say, tell us your story. Like I can, and again, we're just going to transition here from tangent, I guess, to tangent, but I've been in a class before where I've had to raise my hand in the midst of knowing everyone else in the room believes something differently than me. And that that experience is what I shared in the episode on spiritual trauma. My body did not handle that comfortably. Two weeks after that lesson, we had a, a lesson in priesthood where the counselor or the assistant in the high priest group gave a lesson and wanted to talk about the first vision. And I did not know he was going to do this, but class starts, he announces what he's going to talk about, and then he points to me and he says, Bill Real knows the first vision way better than I do. Bill, would you mind taking a few minutes and talking about the first vision to the class? Now think about what he just did. Like in this moment, there was no anxiety. In this moment, there was no nervousness. Why? Because he pointed me out as the expert in the room. He created, simply through his words, a safe space for the person with a different perspective to add insight to the rest of the class. So back to my friend. He turns the time over to this guest, this wonderful man, who's been through a deep and difficult faith transition. And he says, tell your story. And so this young man begins to convey the journey that he's been on, the commitment he had to the church and to the gospel, how his faith crisis happened, the aftermath of having to deconstruct and reconstruct his belief system and and all of his thoughts and understandings and interpretations and all of this. And that class had to just listen Because my friend provided a safe space for this really good young man to share his story. So after this young man was done, he sat down and my friend then used the rest of the class to talk about like, what do we do with that? What do we do with this? Like we want to paint people leaving as having leftover simple reasons. But I think most people, this is him. I think most people leave because they have experiences like this gentleman who just spoke to you. And that is so beautiful. And so the class had a different feel to it, a different a different aura to it. And the class ends up spending its time 
having like much softer responses than you normally would find on this issue in an LDS Sunday school. But when they get to the end, there's a, a lady in the room and she makes the comment. She says something like, I don't know how to help these people. Like they're in a hole and I'm afraid that if I get into the hole with them, that I'm going, I'm going, my testimony is going to be in jeopardy too. Now think about that for a moment because I think that feeling is what many Orthodox members in the church feel. Like I need to distance myself from someone whose world looks like it's fell apart. Because if I associate with them, if I get in the hole with them, then I'm going to be at risk as well. And I think there's some truth to that. Like, Can we just honor what she said? Like there's truth there. That if every Orthodox member literally works to understand someone else's deconstruction and faith journey, and if they metaphorically get into the hole, like Brene Brown was suggesting, then we're going to have to come to grips that some members of the church are going to lose their testimonies. Like, let's honor the fear of that, of that sister who said that comment. Like, if you're in the room as a progressive Mormon or a post-Mormon or whatever, however, a, a liberal Mormon, a nuanced Mormon, a post-correlated Mormon, whatever it is, the, the, sometimes the immediate reaction is to want to jump up and give this lady a hard time from distancing herself from real connection. But can we honor for a moment the real fear that she has? And then can we follow up that validation to her? with the understanding that if we're ever going to really connect with people, if we're ever really going to help someone and really be there for them the way they need us to be there for them, then we have to get into the hole. And, and like, let's think about this. There are lots of holes in this world that people are in. And yes, some of these holes are risky for us. And so I don't want to say, like, you have to get in the hole. You have to get down there. But I'm simply going to say, whether you do or you don't, that's your decision. And yes, there are risks associated with doing that. But at the same time, you cannot help somebody. You cannot connect with someone. You cannot reach them where they are in the way that you they need you to connect unless you understand what empathy is. And you get in the hole. So I want to talk a moment about how sympathy shows up in Mormonism and what empathy looks like. And you heard in Bernays words that sympathy is this distancing yourself from the other person's turmoil, pain, anguish, whatever it is that their hole is to distance yourself from it, to not really want to dive into the details of, of the messiness, but to offer support from this distance. And I would say, like, when something bad happens to somebody in Mormonism, what do we do? And I think the first thing we do is we show up with a casserole. And I ask you, is a casserole sympathy or empathy? And don't get me wrong. Like, I've had those times in my life where I have been in earlier stages of development. And when someone brought a plate of food to my house, like, that told me in that Mormon way that these people loved me. That these people cared about me. But now that I'm in this, and again, this isn't about like, oh, I'm better or I'm worse. Like once I've moved into a later stage of development, 
I see that giving a casserole, it certainly comes from love. It certainly comes from a want to help and assist, but that it absolutely comes from one at a level of sympathy. And for many of the people who bring the casseroles, they haven't developed yet the ability to to have empathy. And so a casserole is like an easy way to like, I'm going to help you, but I just need to stay back. I just, I don't have the time, energy, emotional capital to dive into this with you. So from a distance, I want you to know I love you and I care about you. And this is my way of telling you that. And so that's what happens often in Mormonism. How about when somebody dies and, and we walk up and we say something like, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that, but God must have needed them more than us. They, they have a mission on the other side, right? Like any time someone is in turmoil and we offer them a solution to fix it or to tell them this isn't so bad, that is sympathy. Anytime we say at least, look, at least you didn't have this on your plate, right? Anytime you walk up to someone and they're saying like, my life sucks right now and I'm having a really hard time. And and someone says, at least you don't have this. And I do this. Like I'll go to my kids, my, my daughter, one of my daughters struggles emotionally with things. And I'll walk up at times and say, you know, at least you don't have it as bad as these people in the world who are suffering from these things. And listening to Brene Brown is forcing me to look in the mirror and say, like, in my life, in certain situations, certain life experiences, I don't have the empathy to meet that person where they are. And all I'm giving them is sympathy. And the first step to developing empathy, there's two real things that have to happen. One is you have to realize what you're doing in terms of giving sympathy and seemingly unable to give empathy. The other thing is you need to just really wrap your arms around your life experiences. Like maybe you haven't gone through what that person has gone through, but maybe you've gone through something like it. And rather than giving them a solution, maybe you can just tell them like, I love you. And I don't know how this feels. And I've gone through something, not nothing like what you have, but something to at least a degree that I realize that this sucks right now. This is not, this is not a good thing you're going through. And I'm sorry for that. And I simply want you to know I'm here. I'm here. And then be there, be there, sit with them, be in that space with them. Don't knock on their door, hand them a casserole and walk back to your house. So you don't have to dive into their hole. Instead, Wrap them up in your arms and hold them and then sit with them in that space and just honor and validate that moment for them. And I think for anybody who's listening to the, listening to this, you realize like the truth in this message. And so I, I ought to at least say like for Mormonism, most of us are in an earlier stage of development. Most of us are really only able to give in most situations sympathy. So can we at least begin to realize that's what we're doing? Don't be quick to give solutions. Don't be quick to say, at least you don't have this on your plate. Don't be quick to say, ah, oh, this isn't so bad. 
look, it could be worse. This isn't so bad. Don't just drop off the casserole. It's no different than Brene Brown's sympathetic lady at the hole saying, let me give you a sandwich. The casserole is the sandwich. It's our way of saying, I love you, but I don't want to be in this right now. I can't deal with this. I can't sit with it, sit with you in this. So here's my casserole. It's my way of saying, I love you. That love is real. I love you, but I can't be in this. I've got to go back to my house now. I've got my own issues to deal with problems. I just can't sit with you in this. And Brene talks often about the idea that every one of us needs one person in our life to be somebody who can show empathy, to be somebody who can sit with us in those moments and be real and, and, and drive connection, who, who can, who can hold that space with us and give us space to just talk and work through these things. Like when you're going through a faith crisis, the thing you want the most, you just crave it, is somebody in your family or your ward to sit with you and say, this must be really hard. Tell me what this looks like and what this feels like. I will not give any judgment. I will not tell you how to fix this. I will not tell you that this isn't so bad or that this is going to go away. Instead, I'm just going to sit with you and I'm going to honor your story and I'm going to validate what you're going through. And I'm willing to just listen and sit with this and have this connection with you. But think about how we do handle it. How do we handle somebody in the church when they're having a faith crisis? Number one, we're like this lady. We don't want to get in this hole with you, right? We're scared to death. If I get in the hole, maybe this information causes me to lose my testimony. It's easier if I just paint that information as anti-Mormon propaganda. It's easier if I just say, you've been deceived and the critics have been deceived. It's easier if I just step back and say, look, I'm sorry you're dealing with that, but I just don't want to be involved in it. I just can't get into this mess with you. And I'm saying, if we want to help somebody, if we really want to help somebody, we have to get in that hole. I've gone to so many firesides or events or presentations at this point. And, and I give my little spiel and I talk for a few minutes, but then the most important thing, like let's get to talking aside, let's leave a giant chunk of time for you to ask questions and for me to talk to you. And at every one of these I go to, so many people raise their hand and say like, I'm in the middle of this and it sucks. And, and here's my issue or here's my question or here's my thoughts and, and please share yours. And you can tell by the words they're using and by the connection they're craving that when you show empathy and love and acceptance and validation and honor their journey, like these people have like really serious spiritual experiences with for the first time having somebody in their life honor and validate where they're at and show empathy. Like if we want to start fixing things in this church in terms of helping people whose faith has changed and they're now working to take it apart and put something back together. Like if we really want to change the culture of the church, then we have to find a way as a culture 
to do what Marlon Jensen said, which is to sit with these people and to sit with our uncomfortability and simply allow them to hold the space that they're holding without us trying to fix it, without us trying to, to show them how to get it back to where we're at. And I, and that's so hard to do, but for anybody who listens to this, who is an Orthodox believing member of the church, let me tell you, telling somebody to read more, to pray more, it doesn't work. Telling somebody that they've been deceived, that's not fair. And it's not kind. Telling somebody that the information that they've read without you digging into it and checking out the sources is not appropriate. And it's not helpful. And it's not the reality of the information that they're reading. We can do better. Yes, we're going to be at risk. You're darn right we will be. But I'm telling you, it is the Christ-like reaction. He leaves the 99 and he goes to the one. And the one might be stuck in some thorn bush. And that thorn bush, you may think it's one thing and you get into it and it now rearranges you as well. But the reality is Jesus still does it. And he's called us to follow him. So how can we help somebody? Whether it changes us or not, we have to make an attempt to get into the hole. That's where empathy lies. That is where Christ-like reactions lie. And every person in this church who's in a hard moment, and specifically perhaps in a faith crisis, you need somebody in your life like this. And if you have two or three, you are so lucky You are so blessed. It is a miracle. What do empathetic responses look like? One, it's connection. Like, it's connection. And I don't know how to define that other than when you're in it, you know it. It's connection. Number two, you don't need to have a solution. Don't go into it trying to fix it. Don't go into it trying to say, what is the solution here? Put that aside. If you're thinking that, you're in sympathy. You're not in empathy. Number three, tell people... You don't know what to say. Like, if you're struggling for the words, then don't worry about it. Tell them you don't know what to say. It's okay. Tell people you can only imagine how hard this must be. Then just hug them. Cry with them. Sit with them. Comfort those that stand in need of comfort and mourn with those that mourn. And if by the off chance you have gone through whatever it is, then simply sit with them. Hold them. Hold that space with them. Cry with them and share your experience, but not as a way to say like, my, here's my experience. Here's how I dealt with it and everything was better. No, like I've gone through that. This sucks. I know how this feels and I am just so sorry that you are going through this right now and I am here. And now I want to go back here to Joseph in Liberty Jail. And I hope every one of us listening to this, like we see sympathy and we see empathy, we understand the difference and we realize that empathy is where real connection occurs. And it's when people, it's, it's, it's how people begin to see the support around them to climb out of the hole. So now let's go back to how Heavenly Father addresses Joseph in Liberty Jail. And unfortunately, I don't think this is going where you think it's going to, but I hope we can learn from it nonetheless. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. So how does he start out? Heavenly Father, 
or Jesus, whoever's voice here is talking, how does he start out? Was that sympathy? Was that empathy? To some extent, perhaps a little bit of both. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands. Sympathy or empathy? Right there. Sympathy or empathy? And again, this idea of telling people, like, it's going to get better. This is going to get better. Like, to me, there's some empathy there. Like, to sit someone in the space and say, man, this sucks right now. This is hard. This is hard. This is difficult. I don't want to try to give you solutions or fix it, but it'll get better. It has to. And and I see the hope in that message. Like, that's beautiful. And I think on some level that's empathy. Perhaps some sympathy mixed in again, but there's empathy in that response. Thou art not yet as Job. Thou art not yet. Remember earlier, at least it's not this bad. At least you don't have this on your plate. At least you're not dealing with this. It could be worse. You could have the life of that person. See, all of a sudden, the voice of God here turns into sympathy. And sympathy in a way that those in the health profession who deal with this kind of stuff would say like, ah, not real comfortable here. This response by itself, and perhaps even with teamed up with other things, is is not empathy and it's not connection. And in some ways, perhaps it's not helpful. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgression as they did Job. That, my friends, was sympathy. Not empathy. And they who do charge thee with transgression, their hope shall be blasted, and their prospects shall melt away as the hoarfrost melteth before the burning rays of the rising sun. And also that God hath set his hand and seal to change the times and seasons, and to blind their minds, that they may not understand his marvelous workings, that he may prove them also, and take them in their own craftiness. Also because their hearts are corrupted, and the things which they are willing to bring upon others, and love to have others suffer, may come upon themselves to the very uttermost. That they may be disappointed also, and their hopes may be cut off. And not many years hence, that they and their posterity shall be swept from under heaven, saith God. This here was revenge God. This here was retribution God. And I just don't see God operating that way. Again, I honor that the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon have this narrative. I simply don't see that in today's world. Today, I look around, and if there's a God, I see a God who loves all of his children and realizes that all of us in our human weakness, like, we don't handle things the best, and we sometimes hurt others. And I look at myself as a parent, and I've got four beautiful children, and at times they pick on each other, or they say something that hurts the feelings of the other. I don't jump into the situation and say, you know, dear daughter, you just offended dear son, therefore I hope or will make sure that retribution rains down upon you for the wrong that you have done today. Like, I'm putting my foot down as father, and I'm going to be certain that you are punished to the nth degree for what you have done this day against your sibling. 
that you shall receive at the severest way those things that you deserve and have done unto others. Like that's not a loving heavenly father. And it certainly isn't the savior, Jesus Christ. And so again, here's a paradox to wrestle with, but a father in heaven has to look out at his children where all of us are hurting each other. And all of us are falling short of knowing how to treat each other. And most of us, when we treat each other adversely, when we treat each other in a way that shows we're ill-equipped for the situation, it's generally because of that, that we're ill-equipped, that we're doing things the way we think best. And sadly, some of us think revenge is the right thing for God to do for us in this moment, not realizing the parable of the beam in the moat, and that there's something in our own eye. I can't stand with retribution, God, and say, yeah, God, let's do it. Let's smite these people down. Let's commit genocide. Let's rain down fires from heaven and kill everyone around us. Let's show them, my friend. Come on, Father, let's show them. Like, we can't do that. That is a failing on our part. And so when I hear these words, I simply see this as us trying to convey that God is on our side, when in reality, he is on every one of his children's side. Behold, it is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. God loves all of his children. He's trying to bring all of them home. And I simply can't stand behind a God who in the midst of all the things that Joseph Smith may have done wrong, that that's not a big deal. But let's go ahead and kill and smite and scourge and curse and harm his enemies. That just simply isn't my father in heaven. That not one of them is left to stand by the wall. Cursed are all those that shall lift up the heel against mine anointed, saith the Lord, and cry they have sinned when they have not sinned before me, saith the Lord, but have done that which was meet in mine eyes and which I commanded them. But those who cry transgression do it because they are the servants of sin and are the children of disobedience themselves. And those who swear falsely against my servants that they might bring them into bondage and death, woe unto them, because they have offended my little ones, they shall be severed from the ordinances of mine house. Again, not okay with this. Violence occurs on both sides of Mormonism's history. Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, the Day Knights, the Blood Atonement, the Whistling Whittlers, Hosea Stout. Like, we've committed atrocities. We've committed violence. Damn us for that. Like, who are we to tell God, or who is God to tell us? Like, you guys are the good guys, and those guys are the bad guys, and I'm going to smite them. We've got to come up with better understandings of Scripture, what it is and what it isn't. But there's a, as much atrocity on our side of history as there is on those who are outside the church. This isn't black and white. And my God isn't in Fowler Stage 3. And so I simply can't stand by and just be silent while this God's voice comes out and says, whoever works against this work shall be smitten. Because the reality is, if we're talking about who's working against God's work, it's people on both sides then, from the top to the bottom, and it's people on both sides now. 
their baskets shall not be full, their houses and their barns shall perish, and they themselves shall be despised by those that flattered them. They shall not have right to the priesthood, nor their posterity after them, from generation to generation. It had been better for them that a millstone had been hanged about their necks, and they drowned in the depth of the sea. I'm not okay with this God. I'm not okay with the the anger and vengeful and a being who I'm to look up to who wants nothing in this situation but retribution. Woe unto all those that discomfort my people and drive and murder and testify against them, saith the Lord of hosts. Who are God's people? It's every one of his children. Woe unto all of us who hurt another. Woe unto all of us who cause harm, trauma, pain to another child of God. Woe unto all of us who hurt and damage. Again, my God is not black and white. It's not like 0.2% of the population is his team and everybody else is on another team. I just don't buy that. A generation of vipers shall not escape the damnation of hell. Behold, mine eyes see and know all their works, and I have in reserve a swift judgment in the season thereof for them all. For there is a time appointed for every man, according as his work shall be. Again, that's not, that's just not the way in which I frame Heavenly Father. And, and essentially the rest of the revelation now goes off kind of in another tangent. But I hope today we see like sympathy and empathy. And, and I wanted to end today with showing us like what empathy looks like from the, from the way on which I see God. When, when I look at God and I'm looking for his voice, and I'm looking for a God who understands the messiness and complexity of this world and trying to encourage his children to reach higher. Then I come to a story, an experience, a recounting such as this. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. When Jesus sees the multitude, each of us, Jesus has compassion upon us and only wishes that there were more of us who were working to help and assist and love and connect with his children. Or how about this story with Jesus? And it came to pass, the day after, that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, 
and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came, and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up, and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. Do not cry. Do not cry was the Savior's response. He had compassion upon this woman. In the last scripture, he went about healing everyone. Jesus makes the effort to heal everyone. And in this situation, it says he had compassion upon her and told her not to cry. And then because he's Jesus, he is able to instantaneously fix the situation. But we're not Jesus. We can't promise solutions. We can't, we can't jump in and say, if you do this, this fixes it. We've got to realize, like, in some level, there is a difference between him and us. But we can have compassion. We can hold somebody and say, don't cry. I can only imagine how much this hurts. Don't cry. Like, like, let's work through this. I love you. I care about you. I can only imagine how hard this is. But I am here. I'm going to be with you through this whole thing. We can have compassion. And then there's this story that Jesus told. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. The good Samaritan not only does his part, but then he ensures that he's also passed off to someone else who can help, and also that the good Samaritan continues to follow up and to assist. Like, can we work together as a community? Can we have compassion? Can we sit with people and say, don't cry, I know this is hard. Can we take care of one another? Can we comfort those that stand in need of comfort? Can we mourn with those that mourn? Can we be like Jesus Can we not make God after ourselves? Can we not create a God who is black and white, who seeks revenge? 
who seeks retribution for the things done to some of his elect children, but for whom all of his children continue to do to each other. Can we be better? Can we be more like Jesus? May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless each of you. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.